And if you turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 2. And thank you so much for the prayers. I appreciate it. It's a privilege to be able to serve with each and every one of you each week. So Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. But before men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. When they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Uh, I don't think that I'm out of place to say that the truth that's taught in this passage has the power to completely transform how we live our lives. It has the power to transform how we think about ourselves, how we deal with others, and ultimately how we deal with God. And the message of this passage is completely countercultural to the culture that we live in today. Because we live in a culture that's built upon the idea of self, on improving and building up yourself. The baby boomer generation, those people who were born from 1946 to 1964, were dubbed by Tom Wolfe in the 1970s as the Me Generation. In 2013, Time Magazine dubbed the Millennial Generation, those people born between 1981 and 1996, as the Me, Me, Me Generation. (laughs) According to that article, the authors write, The incidence of narcissistic personality disorder is nearly three times as high for people in their 20s as for the generation that's now 65 or older, according to the National Institutes of Health. 58% more college students scored higher on a narcissism scale in 2009 than in 1982. Millennials got so many participation trophies growing up that a recent study showed that 40% believed that they should be promoted every two years, regardless of performance. They write, they're fame-obsessed. Three, they're three, times, uh, three times as many middle school girls want to grow up to be a personal assistant to a famous person as want to be a senator, according to a 2007 survey. Four times as many would pick the assistant job over CEO of a major corporation. They're so convinced of their own greatness that the National Study of Youth and Religion found the guiding morality of 60% of millennials in any situation is that they'll be able to do what's right, uh, be able to feel what's right. 
their development is stunted. More people ages 18 to 29 would live with their parents than with a spouse, according to the 2012 Clark University Poll of Emerging Adults. And they're lazy. In 1992, the nonprofit Families and Work Institute reported that 80% of people under 23 wanted to one day have a job with greater responsibility. Ten years later, only 60% did. Now, some people want to just blame it on millennials, as if millennials are the problem, but I think that millennials are really kind of the lightning rod. They're kind of evidence of the way that our culture is going, and millennials are kind of the first generation to kind of come to age in our new individualistic, consumeristic information age. And so I don't think they're the problem necessarily. It's the culture that's pushing all of us in that direction. And the result of these things is a national kind of depression. And it causes uh, mental illness. We've seen the number of depression and mental illness issues uh, increase at a rapid pace between 2012 and 2015. The number of youth who experienced severe depression went from 5.9% in 2012 to 8.2% in 2015. According to an article in Scientific America from January 2017, suicide rates per 100,000 people have increased to a 30-year high. Substance abuse, particularly opiates, has become epidemic. Disability awards for mental disorders have dramatically increased since 1980, and the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs is struggling to keep up with the surge in post-traumatic stress disorder. The second most common cause of, of disability in the United States is mental health issues. Now, of course, mental health issues are very multifaceted, and we can't say that mental illness is caused by just the culture. There's many different factors in place, so I don't want to minimize this or simplify it in any way if you struggle with mental illness. All I'm saying is that culture is pushing us in in such a direction that if we follow the cultural values, then we'll end up with problems. Thomas Curran and Andrew Hill uh, write an article where they cite research about millennials and millennials who are experiencing depression, and they found, uh, based on some research that they did, that millennials have this kind of perfectionistic mindset. They feel that they have to have the perfect Uh, image. They have to have the perfect body, the perfect job, the perfect house, the perfect spouse. And if their expectations don't meet reality, then they're depressed. And our culture is kind of pushing us in that direction to say that we have to be the best version of ourselves that we can be. That you have to have things perfect if you're going to have value and have meaning. They write, this is a culture which preys on insecurities and amplifies imperfection impelling young people to focus on their personal deficiencies. As a result, some young people brood chronically about how they should behave, how they should look, or what they should own, essentially agitating to perfect themselves and their lives. And what we see is there's kind of been a shift in culture. Now, there's, culture has always been kind of focused on self, but in our culture, specifically in America, there's been a shift from finding value in community and religion to finding value in the individual within yourself. And so the kind of the cultural value, the cultural mindset that we have in our culture is that you need to focus on being the best version of yourself so that you might be valuable. And I don't think this is too far off from what was happening during Paul's day. 
Paul begins this passage that says that he, when, when Peter or Cephas came to Antioch, he opposed him to his face. Note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say he disagreed with them, so he went and told a bunch of other people how bad Peter was. No, he said he talked to them directly. And this is an issue that has uh, serious significance. He speaks to Peter so, so forcefully because for Paul, this isn't a periphery issue. Now, as Christians, we can agree to agree on, uh, disagree on a number of things. We might disagree on uh, how Jesus is going to come back or the millennial kingdom, or we might disagree on uh, the spiritual gifts and how those things are manifested. We can agree to disagree on a lot of things, but for Paul, this action of Peter is a gospel issue. What he's doing, it has gospel significance. And what Peter was doing was that he, what, he had been eating with Gentiles, but then when a contingent from James came to, uh, to the city, to Antioch, or to his place, um, he decided he wasn't going to eat with the Gentiles anymore. It says they did that out of fear. Now, the reason that this idea of eating with Gentiles was such a big deal was because uh, it was taught, devout, devout Jews were taught not to eat with Gentiles because Gentiles were considered to be sinners, pagans. They didn't have the law. They didn't have the promises of God. And so eating with them was kind of a sign of acceptance. And if you ate with them, you were kind of contaminating yourself because you were eating with people who were sinners. They're pagans. They're heathens. In addition to that, there were people called zealots who kind of wanted to overthrow the Roman government during that time frame. And these zealots thought that you shouldn't eat with the Gentiles because if you did so, they were going to kind of take over your culture. You're going to lose your Jewish identity and you're going to lose who you are if you eat with these Gentiles. And we saw that that's what's happened in the Old Testament with Israel and the Canaanites and the conquest. They intermarried with the Canaanites and became like the Canaanites. And so the devout Jews said, do not eat with Gentiles. But the gospel was different. The gospel taught that People were sinners whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, whether you had the law or didn't have the law. And Paul declares here in this passage, as well as uh, in great length in the book of Romans, that by the works of the law, no man will be declared righteous. No one will be justified. The word justified means to give approval, uh, to give favor. And, And so Paul says that, By the works of the law, no person will be declared righteous. No person will be given the stamp of approval, so to speak. That all of us are sinners, whether Jew or Gentile. In Romans 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So no matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, male or female, black or white, no matter who you are, you've fallen short of God's standards. Whether you have the law or you don't have the law. Now, you might think to yourself, well, I'm not that bad. I'm a decent person. But as we look at God's law in the Old Testament, and specifically what Jesus says, it shows us, all of us, just how far we fall short of God's glory. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21 to 22. He says, you've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew 5, 27 and 28 says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Matthew 6.25 says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food. The body more than clothing. Matthew 5.43-46, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your, en- love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. I mean, how many of us, our first response when somebody does something wrong to us, it's like, okay, I'm going to pray for that person. Now, maybe after God's worked in our, in our hearts for some time, we've come to that place where we can do that. But that's not our first reaction. And I think all of us could tell stories if we we're going to go around how somebody did something wrong to us and we lashed out in anger at them. Finally, Jesus says in Matthew 27, 39, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as, your th- as yourself. I mean, how many of us have that all nailed, right? How many of us say, oh yeah, I love Jesus with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength all, every day, all the time. How many could say, I, I love my neighbor as myself? Every moment of every day. We all fall short. And, and, and good works are good. I mean but they can't save us. They can't keep us afloat. It's kind of like a man who uh, just short time ago, he tried to build a raft out of something that was good, but not using it for its intended purpose. Duct tape is a good thing. It can come in very helpful, but it's not very good for making a watercraft, a boat. So he tried to make a boat out of uh, duct tape, and he did so, and he went and he put his dog in there, had a little... Uh, uh, um, or and he started to take on water and the Coast Guard had to come and rescue him. Now the problem wasn't with the duct tape. I mean the duct tape was doing what it was intended to do. It just wasn't intended to make a boat. And the same thing is, is true for our works. Our works are good in and of themselves but they're not meant to save us. They can't keep us afloat. And so we have a parallel here between our culture, and Paul's audience in Galatia. And I think that our audience here, our, our culture here, is very similar to the culture in Galatia in many ways. In Galatia, there was a temptation to base life upon one's own performance. To say, I have the law, and so I'm better than the Gentile who doesn't have the law. I have the law, and so I can earn my favor, or at least keep my favor with God because of what God has given me in the law. And so there was this tendency to base God's favor on your own performance, to try to earn God's favor in your own strength. And inevitably, that project was doomed to failure. Remember even the Apostle Paul who says that he advanced to the greatest stages of Judaism, and yet he fell short. In our culture, remember going back to that study uh, or that research that I cited about millennials. And I, I don't think it just applies to millennials, but this tendency to have this perfectionistic mindset that we need to improve ourselves, that we need to do everything that we can to make ourselves valuable and acceptable in society. The only difference in our culture is that we're not trying to impress God, we're trying to impress other people. 
We're not trying to be justified before God. We're trying to be justified before other people. But in this passage, Paul shows us a way out. And he shows us a way out that he's found by his own personal experience when he says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul says, I died to the law. I've been crucified with Christ. You see, it's only as we die to ourselves that we find life. It's only as we die to ourselves and our own performance that we find life. And this is something that's completely countercultural. And the, the truth that's completely countercultural is the fact that you and I are not the point. We're not the point. In the grand scheme of things, we are pretty average. We're pretty ordinary. We're, in fact, we're so ordinary, the Bible calls us sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And our culture would say, well, that's a terrible thing to tell yourself. You should never think like that. You need to tell yourself that you're special, that you can face anything. You need to love yourself. You need to tell your kids that they're the best thing in the world. That there's nobody as great as they are. Then we wonder why we're disappointed. But the truth, the truth that Paul gives us here, that we're not the point, it's incredibly good news. Our culture considers it bad news, but it really is good news, incredibly good news. Because the fact that it's not about us means that our failures don't define us anymore. The fact that it's not about us means that we don't have to worry about whether we're going to be successful. And if we're successful, then we're accepted. If we're not successful, we're not accepted. We don't have to worry about that. We, have to, we can get off the hamster wheel, so to speak. We don't have to earn our worth. We find our worth in Christ. He says, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. My identity is not, no longer tied to my performance in Judaism. It's no longer to, tied to the law. It's tied to what Christ has done on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so my union with Christ is what matters. He's the one who has accepted me. Not because I earned it. Not because I deserved it. Because of what He did for me on the cross. And He says that part of me who tried to earn God's favor, that part is dead. And the part that it's alive is following after Christ, trusting what he's done for me on the cross. The one who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we have a choice whether we're going to focus on ourselves or whether we're going to look outside ourselves to Christ. You know, the word narcissism, do you know where narcissism comes from? Uh, narcissism comes from a character in Greek mythology named Narcissus. He was a hunter from Thespia in Boeotia, and he was known for his great beauty. He was the son of the river god Cephasus and the nymph Lerope. And uh, he was so beautiful that people were just kind of drawn to him. But he was not a nice person. He was very prideful. And he would make people do great feats of strength to prove their love for him. And in fact, uh, many people had to commit suicide. He made them commit suicide to prove how much they loved him. So a god named Nemesis, who was the god who was responsible for uh, judging those who had excessive pride, he came up with this scheme. And he lured Narcissus to a pool. 
And Narcissus came to this pool, and as he came up and looked in this pool, he saw his own reflection in the pool. You know, in that day and age, they didn't have mirrors, so he didn't know what that was. He thought it was an actual person. And he began to fall in, lo- fall in love with this image. And he was just mesmerized by this image. And he just stayed at that pool longing for himself. Some, uh, some accounts of the legend suggest that after some time, after he realized that this person could not love him back, he committed suicide. Other, store, other accounts say that he just kept looking at the pool and slowly withered away to nothing. That's the choice that we have. Whether we follow what our culture is telling us to do and look at our own reflection, focus on ourselves, and if we do that, we slowly wither away. We lose our identity. Or we can look outside outside ourselves to Christ, the one who is worthy of all glory and honor, the one who considered us so valuable that he went to the cross for us, the one who secured our identity once and for all. One day, the theologian Miroslav Volf was uh, visiting a small town, or a town called Sandtown, which was a very poor and dangerous neighborhood in Baltimore, and uh, just a terrible neighborhood. And as he was talking to his pastor friend there, his pastor friend described how the doctrine of justification by faith helped him get through and helped his parishioners get through everyday life. And when I'm talking about the, ju- the idea of justification by faith, I'm talking about this idea that salvation is not by our own works, but by trusting in what Christ has done. That's what justification by faith is. And Wolf was shocked by this because he's a theologian and professor at Yale. And uh, he had noted how many people in the church, many churches had gone away from this doctrine, either not emphasized the doctrine or completely did away with it, complete, or did, completely did away with it. But as he sat and he thought about it, he realized just how important this doctrine was to people undergoing these circumstances. He writes this, imagine that you have no job, no money, you live cut off from the rest of society in a world ruled by poverty and violence. Your skin is the wrong color. You have no hope that any of this will change. Around you is a society governed by the iron law of achievement. Its gilded goods are flaunted before your eyes on TV screens. In a thousand ways, society tells you every day that you are worthless because you have no achievement. You're a failure, and you know that you will continue to be a failure because there's no way to achieve tomorrow what you have not managed to achieve today. Your dignity is shattered and your soul is enveloped in the darkness of despair. But Wolf says, but the gospel tells you you're not defined by outside forces. It tells you that you count. Even more that you're loved unconditionally and infinitely. Irrespective of anything you have achieved or failed to achieve. He says, imagine now this gospel, not simply proclaimed, but embodied in community. Justified by sheer grace, it seeks to justify by grace those declared unjust by a society's implacable law of achievement. Imagine further this community determined to infuse the wider culture along with its political and economic institutions with the message that it seeks to embody and proclaim. This is justification by grace, proclaimed and practiced. He says, a dead doctrine, hardly. When I was about eight years old, my family 
went on a trip to Philadelphia to a place called Sesame Place where they had all the Sesame Street characters and uh, had a great time there. But we're on the way home on I-95 and um, this lady and her boyfriend were driving down the road and uh, this lady, she decided that she wanted to see how fast the car would go. She was driving a Chevy Camaro. Uh, So she went 105 miles an hour before she crossed over the median and hit our car head on. And uh, it was miraculous that any of us survived, but all of us survived, but we had severe injuries, each of us. And uh, I was taken to, me and my brother were taken to one hospital. My dad was, mom were taken to another hospital. And I had uh, part of my large intestine removed. And so they did that surgery. And shortly after that surgery, they tried to get me up to, to walk. And uh, I couldn't walk by myself obviously. I mean, I was in an incredible amount of pain. And so these little nurses, and I was a big kid even back then, they're, they're trying to hold me up to, to get me to walk around. But they couldn't hold up my weight. And so I just was in so much pain, I basically just started crying and basically refused to walk. Now, somehow, the hospital got a hold of my dad and uh, my mom was, had a bunch of surgeries and was kind of completely incapacitated at, at that point. But they got a hold of my dad, and he had had dr- traumatic brain injuries as well as knee injuries. Uh, when he first woke up, he didn't even know he had kids. Um, but somehow they got a hold of him, and somehow he talked them into uh, letting them uh, release him. Because uh, the, the hospital that I was in told him, you know, Matthew will not walk. And if he doesn't walk, he's not going to get better. So somehow he got released, found a cab. I think he might have got lost on the way because, like, he was, he was out of it. But he got to the hospital. And I remember, I'll never forget him trying to talk me into walking. And finally I started to walk with him. But walking with him was very different than walking with the nurses because I remember, never forget how he took his big, strong arms and put them under my arms, and he could carry my weight. He could help me walk around the place, around the hospital. Ladies and gentlemen, the truth is you can't walk alone. Imagine how foolish I would have been if I was, my dad came over to help me, and I was like, I, I can do this myself. I can walk myself. That's sometimes what we do. We focus on our own efforts, our own performance, rather than the looking to the one who can carry our weight. The one who can, who's done everything for us. And so as believers, let us never focus upon ourselves and our own efforts. Yes, we do everything we can to follow Christ. Yes, we get rid of sin. But it's not to earn God's salvation. It's because of what Christ has done for us. Because we're so grateful. And so we look to Him. We worship Him. We love Him. Because it's not about us. And that's incredibly good news. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You didn't leave us to our own devices. We thank You that You didn't leave us by ourselves. That we're not focused. We don't have to live a life focused on ourselves and improving ourselves to either be justified before you or be justified before men. We thank you that our identity is secure as believers in you, in what you've done for us.
We thank you that there's nothing that can separate us from your love. That there's no situation, whether it's financial difficulties, marital difficulties, mental illness, there's nothing that can separate us from your love because of what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, I pray that as a church, we would look outside of ourselves and we would see you as the glorious God that you are. And as we do that, we would surrender everything that we have to you. Knowing that we only find our life as we die to ourselves. And you live inside of us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.